I am a woman, I am an openly gay woman, I am a mom, I'm a Vermonter. And one of the things that I think about is when I walk in that building though, I'm just there doing the work of the people. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When State Senator Becca Ballant is sworn in as Vermont's new Senate President Pro Tem next month, she will shatter not one, but two glass ceilings over the Green Mountain State's highest legislative body. Ballant will become the first woman and the first openly gay pro tem in the state's history. Becca Ballant is a former teacher who was elected to the Vermont State Senate in 2014, becoming its first openly gay member. Her Senate colleagues elected her majority leader two years later. Ballant grew up in upstate New York and attended Smith College. Then she went on to receive master's degrees in education from Harvard and another master's in history from UMass Amherst. She and her wife have two children and live in Brattleboro. Becca Ballant is part of a first-ever all-female leadership team that will run the state Senate, which includes incoming Lieutenant Governor Molly Gray, Majority Leader Allison Clarkson, and Assistant Majority Leader Cheryl Hooker. Senate pro tem-elect Becca Ballant, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for the invitation. So for people who don't know you, let's just start by tell us a little bit about your background, what brought you to Vermont, and to run for office. Well, I am one of those interesting people who always knew she wanted to be in politics. And so at, at a very, very young age, but as I will tell my friends and family, I never thought that that would be something I could actually do was something that I wanted to do, but didn't think I would actually get to do it. Partly because I didn't know anyone in politics. I didn't have any connections. I didn't have any family that had been involved. And at the time when I was most interested in being in politics, was, which was in high school, the only uh, openly gay politician I knew was Harvey Milk and he'd been assassinated. And so my you know, 17 year old brain just sort of put that aside and said, okay, that's probably not gonna happen in my lifetime. And so it is interesting to think how intensely I felt in high school that that's what I was called to do, but that I didn't think I would be able to do it. And so, you, so you were you were an out lesbian in high school already? Out to myself and out to a handful of friends. Um, but I, can't, I couldn't imagine running for public office and being an out gay person at that time. So that was 1986. You know, so much has changed, David, in the last two decades plus. It's incredible. And so it is having the Senate Democratic Caucus unanimously nominate me and vote in support of my nomination to be pro tem was such a moving moment for me personally to know that I am doing the thing that I always felt called to do. So before I went into politics, I was a teacher for years. I taught middle school and community college, history and social studies. And I ran for office initially because I was quite alarmed at the poverty rate in my child's school. Um, Both my children went to elementary school in downtown Brattleboro and at their school, 70% of the children qualified for free and reduced lunch when they started there. And it had been hovering about 50% and even that was very alarming. Um, And as it crept higher, I I felt like 
I need to feel in, in the, in the game in a different way to try to help my community members and initially got involved in economic development work in Brattleboro and looking at workforce development and um, have served on the economic development and housing committee for the last three terms in the Senate. And I'm really proud of the work that we've done there around workforce development and housing in particular. Um, so much to do still, but that's really what finally pushed it over the edge for me was looking at what was happening in my own community and having my wife say, you're gonna look back on your life and say you didn't do the thing you were supposed to do. And I said, well, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but our kids were tiny then. One was in kindergarten, one was in preschool. I said, how will we possibly make this work? And she said, well, Ron, you probably are not gonna win because nobody wins the first time out. You know? <laughs> so that was, that was what we were counting on in some ways. And then you know, I worked really hard in the primary and had a lot of people helping me on the ground. And so when I won on primary night, we both looked at each other like, oh no, oh no, this is great. And also how are we gonna make this work? And so uh, for, for folks listening who don't have someone in their family in politics, I can tell you it, it has to be a group effort. As you well know, David, it has to be a group effort. <laughs> so one of the interesting things I noted in your bio uh, yeah. was, and maybe this was the thing that brought you to Vermont, you yeah. taught at Farm and Wilderness. Um, and for folks who don't know what that is, this is a legendary institution in Vermont, but, but say a little bit about what it is and why it brought you here and how it yeah. affected you. So the Farm and Wilderness Foundation is located in central Vermont, in Plymouth, Vermont. And it's a Quaker-based organization. Um, it has it runs several camps on um, the Woodward Reservoir in Plymouth, and also up in Mount Holly. There are two other uh, camps up there, and also run outdoor education programs. And have been around for many, many years. And you may know Malcolm X actually. Uh, Betty Shabazz sent her kids to. The farm and wilderness camps. Yeah. I did um, not know that. Yes. An amazing, an amazing history there. So I was initially brought to Vermont. Yes. By taking a job at the farm and wilderness camps, it was 1994 and I was hired as a rock climbing and trip leading instructor. And then I stayed for many years uh, working there at one of the camps in Mount Holly and then went on to direct one of the camps. And that's actually how I met my wife. She worked at one of the camps and her parents used to direct one of the camps. And so um, we, we love the place. It is an amazing foundation, really helps people understand their place in the world in a different way. I've been really blessed with meeting so many interesting people, both as colleagues and also my former campers have grown up to do really wonderful things in the world. So my own kids are not, well, yeah, thanks for my sharing own kids that. are, are yeah, not there I mean, now, but we'll see. Maybe someday we'll get them there. They've been resistant. <laughs> I did not go yeah. to Farm and Wilderness, but I have many friends, even back in college, I had no idea what it yeah. was. Friends would go to this place yeah. in Vermont and it seemed incredibly important yeah. to them. And I've since learned more about it. And then it popped yeah. up in your bio and I thought, well, it's, well, Let's Interesting, <laughs> David. The other day, I was finishing up an interview with a state house reporter, and we finished up the topics that we want to talk through. And he was hanging around a little bit. He said, "Can I just talk to you about something else for a while? I just 
on a personal level. I said, sure. He said, I went to Farm and Wilderness and I see that you went to Farm and Wilderness. And he said, I feel like I know so much about you just from knowing that, just from knowing that you went there, it was important to you and that you, you continue to work there. And it is about, it, it, so I should have said this at the top of my explanation, one of the things that really moves me in my work still in the legislature is seeing the light in every person that you come in contact with. And I really think about that in the work that I do when someone comes into my committee room or if someone sends me an email or a phone call, even if it's not a positive one, if it's an angry one or a frustrated one, I really try before I respond to take a deep breath and think, find the light in every person. And that helps guide me in my work. There was an article in Vermont Tigger that was headlined uh, and noting that you were, quote, the first woman and openly gay pro tem. You wrote on Facebook, uh, and I quote, one of the things I love about this article's title is the acknowledgement that there have certainly been leaders throughout history who have been queer but couldn't be themselves publicly. They were all elected at a much more difficult time to be out and proud. I stand on the shoulders of such brave yeah. people. Say a little bit about that and about the responsibility yeah. that you feel and what's special about yeah. this moment. So where to begin? I guess where I'd start is there are many things that have gotten easier for, for folks who identify as LGBTQ. Um, and still there are things that, that are not easy. And I try to hold both those truths. And so we were celebrating a couple years ago, the anniversary of the passage of uh, civil unions and same-sex marriage in Vermont. And, and some of my colleagues were speaking on the floor of the Senate about how important that was for them. And, and it was important and it was a really beautiful thing. And also I wanted to remind them, it doesn't mean the work is done. So when I first moved to Vermont, we were just talking about when I first moved to Vermont, within the first few months of moving there, I had the word dyke scratched into the side of my car with a key, which is, you know, pretty, pretty immediate indication that you're not you know, feeling welcome in your community. Um, and so I talked about that. And one of the young people who worked in the state house as a page came up to me in the hallway afterwards, after I said my piece on the floor, she said, I'm really glad you said something because, you know, I identify as queer. It isn't comfortable in my family. It isn't comfortable in my school. And, you know, it's 20, at that point it was 2018 or something like that. She said, I don't want people oh, and to- And we should note that pages are eighth graders. That's right, they're eighth graders. And so it was remarkable that she felt comfortable talking to me um, about that. And so I wanted people to understand that when the headline, when it said openly gay, that I know that there have been leaders throughout history um, that have not been able to be themselves. And I'm sure that that's true in the building as well. And when I think about people like Ron Squires who served from Guilford, which is in my district, when he was a, an openly gay house member and a much beloved one, and, and still in my neck of the woods here in Vermont, still very much beloved. And I think about what it took for him to have that courage it takes my breath away 
because even years after he served, they were still having a knockdown drag out fight about what was going to happen with same sex marriage and, and civil unions. And what I always say to my, my friends when they say, well, how do you remain in conversation with people that you know do not respect you because of not something you've chosen, but who you are? Like, how do you get beyond that? And I always tell them it comes back to trying to talk to people across fear. So when my wife and I bought our house in Brattleboro, the man who bought, the, the man who lived across the street from the house that we bought, every time he opened his garage door, you'd see his giant take back Vermont sign. He still had it. And I saw it every time he opened the door. And I could have made a decision that never going to have any kind of relationship with this man, that we're going to be in this antagonistic, hostile relationship. But the thing is we were neighbors and we shared a fence and we, you know, we did that thing that you do in small town, which is you have to get to know your neighbors. And when I first ran for office, he said, you know, no offense, Becca, but you know, I'm not going to vote for you. I'm a lifelong Republican. I said, I get that. I understand that. He said, I just, I just wanted you to know it's not, it's not personal. It's, it's politics. I said, I understand. A couple years after that, he got very, very sick with cancer. And I came over to help a lot in the house, helping his wife move things because he lost his, um, his strength. And one day I, I heard him out in the yard showing his, they had an upstairs apartment that they rented out to help them make their mortgage. And I was listening through the hedge about what he was saying to these folks who were gonna move in. And he sort of gestured over to my house and he said, the neighbors are great you're never gonna find nicer people over there. And he was talking about us. And that was just from conversation after conversation, seeing him for who he was as a whole human being and for him seeing who I was. So I carry all of those things with me when I walk into the building. And I am, uh, I am a woman, I am an openly gay woman, I am a mom, I'm a Vermonter. And one of the things that I think about is, when I walk in that building though, I'm just there doing the work of the people. People want us to be looking after them regardless of their background, regardless of their political affiliation. And that is the biggest weight that I feel is wanting to do the work that Vermonters have sent me there to do and make lives easier for people on the ground. You are becoming the first woman Senate president pro tem after four years of the Trump administration, a hallmark of which has been attacks on women in leadership. We've mm -hmm. seen it with the attack on the governor of Michigan. And yes. in the last week, Trump has really aimed his uh, hottest fire at female secretaries of state. That would be in Arizona, Pennsylvania, yeah. Michigan. Mm -hmm. uh, so if people are paying close attention, uh, yes, the people who he's angriest at are all women. Yes. So you are preparing to lead a very important political body mm -hmm. at this moment in time when um, I would say misogyny and sexism are at a peak. Yeah. How is that going to affect your work? How has it affected your work thus mm -hmm. far? It's a great question. And and make, yeah, make no mistake about it. He, he is... 
he is a, a terrible misogynist. And if you just take one of those instances in the way that he responded or rather didn't respond to the threats on the life of Gretchen Whitmer, it's, it's chilling. It's absolutely chilling. So one of the things that I think a lot about is the fact that that kind of vitriol, that kind of hatred is masking a deep, deep insecurity, not just in terms of him as a person, but his place in the world, right? It is this fear that I am losing power, whether it is because of race, because of gender, because of um, age. You know, I think on, on some level, he represents uh, a national psyche around losing power. So I gave a talk the other day about how we need to get better as leaders at reframing power, that you don't either have it or you don't, right? There's all kinds of ways in which we can and should share power. And when we share power, it doesn't mean the other person loses something. We usually get a better uh, outcome when there is shared power. But I know just from some side, you know, conversations that I know have been happening in the background as I have approached this work as pro tem, there is certainly questions about whether I am up for the task. Absolutely. And I'm not going to pretend that those aren't there. But I know that most people are looking for a different kind of leadership. We saw that in the repudiation of Trumpism at the ballot box. Millions and millions of more people want something else in a leader. And yes, in many ways you could say Biden sort of harkens back to an old school style of leadership. But if you look at who he is appointing to his cabinet, it is making a very different statement. And so my, my message uh, to people when they see that kind of misogyny, that kind of vitriol, is that they're afraid of losing power. And that the best that we can do is show that there's another way to do the work and be, and be inclusive. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation, and we're talking with Senate President Pro Tem-elect Becca Ballant. Um, let's broaden the lens beyond you, because uh, it is also historic that women have taken charge in the Vermont State House. Uh, in the Senate, the Senate will be run by yourself as Pro Tem, Lieutenant Governor-elect Molly Gray, the incoming Majority Leader Allison Clarkson, the Assistant Majority Leader Cheryl Hooker, and of course we're expecting that um, Jill Krowinski will be uh, elected Speaker of the House. Why does this matter? How's it gonna run differently that women are in charge? You know, it matters <clears throat> for, for several reasons. One being that representation absolutely matters. I know it probably wouldn't have taken me as long as it took me to run for office and to really step more fully into the work that I was called to do if I had seen more uh, women in politics and seen more openly gay people in politics. So that representation matters. The other thing that matters is we do not uh, tap into the potential of any group of people when we are not asking them all to show up as their full selves. 
And what I've seen throughout my time, uh, not just in the state house, but you know, throughout my career, is that when you have to expend so much energy trying to overcome sexism or homophobia, it takes away from the energy that you have to do other things. So I'm kind of thinking of it as this sort of big opening up of energy that's going to be unleashed when we don't have to constantly be second guessing ourselves in, in conversations. Or um, one of the things that happened that I noticed when I became majority leader, anytime I was talking to another uh, female senator or member of you know the governor's team if they were a female or commissioner secretary or somebody in the house if there were more than two women standing around we would get some crack like oh the women have taken over oh the woman cabal you know fill in the blank i mean it happened more times than you could ever imagine david and you know that three men standing together <laughs> never got that response okay i was also accused um early on as majority leader of being too um, friendly with the, with the ladies of the house. And I said, do you mean the speaker of the house? Like, what, what are you talking about? As majority leader, my job is to talk to the other majority leader and the speaker of the house. But again, there was this sense that as women, there was some kind of coven or cabal just when we were trying to do our work. And so that was so demoralizing and so frustrating because I'm just trying to do my work. And I think it goes back to, you know, it's hard not to think about the, the, the Salem witch trials, like women get together and bad things happen, right? Scary, scary stuff happens. And that's exhausting. It's exhausting to have to deal with that kind of thing. And I, I don't know if we'll lead differently because we're women. I have no idea. What I know is that my ideas about leadership grow out of my experience as, as a mom, as a teacher, as someone who, who, who has directed programs before, that I want to make sure all the voices in the Senate are heard in caucus and, and in the body because we are all sent there by our constituents to do work. Your predecessor, uh, pro tem, Senator Tim Ash, spoke often about what he called two Vermonts and his desire to serve both and to bridge them. How would you characterize your priority as a leader of the Senate? So I don't disagree with Tim, though I think it's more complicated than that. I think we often talk about there being one divide, which is uh, oftentimes he talked about the, the rural-urban divide, right? Folks who uh, are living in um, more, feeling on the outskirts of the, the economic prosperity that's happening. And that is true. We absolutely see that in Vermont. But, you know, I was writing a column this morning in which if you break it down by gender, you can break it down by class, you can break it down by political affiliation, you can break it down by age within Vermont, that when you look through one particular lens, um, you're going to tell one story. And I think my, one of my goals in coming in as pro tem is to allow there uh, to be room for us to hold many stories at once. 
So for example, we know that there is an incredibly tough time going on right now for working people. Okay, so many people, they've lost their jobs. Some of them have lost their health care along with their jobs. So I had the Joint Fiscal Office break down some numbers for me the other day. I wanted to understand what was going on. What were the jobs that were lost? Primarily, who are those people? And so when you look in Vermont, you have um, women comprising 67% of the total number of folks who applied for unemployment insurance, 67% women. So there's gender divide there, right? And that's because so many of the jobs were lost in the service industry, right? And we know women primarily are are in that industry. And which is again, not to say that there isn't a story to be told about the working class versus the middle class versus white collar jobs, but it is so much more complicated than just that that when we, I was hoping we could get into this actually, and I wasn't sure how we'd get there, but there's a, there's a book out that I just started. I, I'm sure you'd be really interested in it too. It's by Tim, I think his last name is pronounced Tankersley. He's with the New York Times, was with the Washington Post for a while. And he started to look at this notion of the middle class and, and what that means in America. And what are the stories that we tell about the middle class and what's left out? And one of the things he says is, we have this story about the, these, this uh, sort of halcyon days when the white male working class you know, was, was at its a heyday, but we don't talk about it as the white working class or the white middle class. We talk about it as the middle class. And what he says is if you go back and you look at what was happening for uh, African-American people at that time when they're trying to get into the middle class or for women who are trying to get into middle class, It's a very different story that is being told. And so I wanna challenge all of us, and I do mean all of us, like my colleagues, my constituents, for all of us to see the complexities within our communities because the the solutions to our problems are not easy, they're complicated. And so I wanna build on the work that Tim did in talking about what he called the two Vermonts. And I'm still trying to figure out my framing for it it is incorporating that idea, but there are also a lot of people, I think, that have been left out of the story of what makes up Vermont. And I want to really dig into that a little bit more. This uh, is a time of extraordinary challenge for the state. What looms largest in your mind? Oh, my gosh. I mean, definitely the, the pandemic, the ongoing pandemic and the recovery from that. I think the recovery is going to take an incredibly long amount of time. I was just meeting with my leadership, new leadership team in the Senate this morning about this, is that there are so many things that we need to address from the childcare system to our lack of affordable housing to our ongoing opioid crisis to just simply how are we going to get tens of thousands of Vermonters back to work? Right. And so that we already have a full plate just dealing with pandemic relief. Lay on top of that the fact that we're not going to be doing our work in the most efficient way possible, which is actually in the building together across, you know, from a table at each other. We're going to be doing it over Zoom. And so one of the things that we're going to be talking about with with senators is 
what are the things we absolutely feel like we need to do to address the needs of Vermonters right now in this pandemic? And then what are the things that we can do over the course of two years in the biennium to improve those systems so that going forward, they're healthier because that's the pandemic has revealed all the, all the cracks that we knew were there, but that we thought we would be able to, as I always say, fix with duct tape and twine, right? But when it turns out when you have a pandemic, the duct tape and twine doesn't go very far. So, but it, it's gonna be, the first few months are gonna be all about pandemic help relief. How do you see you lead an overwhelmingly Democratic body? Uh, you remind me, what is the Democrat Republican split now in this? 23 to 30. 23 to 30. Yeah. Uh, still a large lead also in the House and a Republican governor. Mm -hmm. um, that relationship has been uh, fraught. I think it mm -hmm. began sure. in 2016 with lots of vetoes, lots of conflicts and evolved. Yeah. Um, how do you see the the evolution of the relationship between the legislature and the governor? And what do you anticipate will be, you know, what do you bring to that relationship? So a couple of things. You're right. It has evolved. Absolutely. I mean, the, the governor that we were working with in the last six months or so is very different from the governor that we were working with um, during his first three years in office. Absolutely true. Much more confrontational. Um, we were not able to get his team to engage with us within um, the work that we do trying to build policy that will, that will be agreeable, agreeable to both the legislative and the executive branch. I am an optimist by nature. I feel like he has been really quite good about the way that he's operated during this pandemic in terms of giving Vermonters a lot of information, really trusting the science. And yes, he, he was rewarded at the ballot box with um, another term. I hope he doesn't overplay that hand. I heard him say the other day that it's, it's a mandate, you know, I'm the only one standing kind of thing. And I would caution him because I talked to those same folks out in the field who decided not to vote Democratic and were very you know, honest with me that even though they were Democratic, they were going to give the, Re the Republican governor another term. And it all came down to his COVID response. That was the only reason. It wasn't about his stand on minimum wage. It wasn't on toxics. It wasn't on family medical leave insurance. And it goes back to what I was saying before. So much of it is, is fear-based, right? So you want to feel secure. And I, that's not a judgment. Like Vermonters want to feel secure. They're watching governors across the country seriously screw it up, right? And he and Dr. Levine were, were great in many, many ways. But I want him to understand that when you have your success wrapped up in one particular issue, if that issue doesn't go well, right, then there's, there's a re-examination of, of the record, which is not to say, I don't think things are going to change. I think he's going to continue to listen to science and, and make uh, careful decisions. What I think people forget is that we have a system of checks and balances for a reason. And we saw at the federal level what happens 
when you truly don't have that. And so you've got a governor um, in Vermont who he's got his staff year round. He's got a bully pulpit year round. He's got his everyday press conference, you know, on COVID and people really want to know, you know, what's happening on that front. And you have a part-time legislature, wholly understaffed, trying to do the work of the legislative branch. And it is not, it is not an even balance by any stretch. And when people, we, we saw this during the, 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 the crisis when hundreds and hundreds of Vermonters were calling us for their unemployment checks. And the, it was backed up, they couldn't get through. Weeks and weeks stretched into months and months. I am still dealing with some of those folks who've been waiting since March to get relief. And so I need the governor, even though he feels uh, emboldened by his second term, I need him to stay humble in the fact. Third term. Oh, excuse me, what did I say, second? Yes. Oh my goodness, of course, his third term, David. Oh my gosh, how embarrassing. Of course I know it's his third term. Um, to stay a little bit humble and understand that so much of it is about the pandemic. And it doesn't mean that Vermonters still don't want headway on, on housing and on childcare and all those other things that make for a much more affordable life here in Vermont. So. And finally, um, what will it take for Vermont to recover strong from COVID? And how long do you think that will be? So I think one of the things that's that's top on on my list, and I know I speak for a number of Vermonters um, in my community and many senators, which is we have got to get our hand around broadband expansion. So we know that without that, our rural communities will not survive. And so we were a little bit, well, a lot hamstrung by the fact that we couldn't use so many of the federal CARES dollars to do broadband build out because all of the money needed to be spent by the end of December. So we spent several million dollars as opposed to a big chunk of money, which we wanted to spend. But until we really wrestle with making sure all Vermonters are wired, they're not going to be able to not just have thriving uh, economies inside their, their small towns and villages, schools right now, right now, so many of the students trying to learn remotely, so much of the telemedicine, we've realized that it's much more important than even those of us who've been advocating for it for so long, even that we realize that we cannot be a thriving state and a healthy state without people being connected to the internet. It just, it's, it's a no-go. And it used to be talked about in the legislature, well, it would be a nice thing to do, but you know, it's kind of a, it's not a necessity, right? And this, of course, this emergency has shown us so acutely what a necessity it is. Senate President Pro Tem Elect Becca Ballant, thanks so much for joining us on the Vermont Conversation this week. It is my pleasure. <laughs>